Welcome to the Truthiverse. My name is Brendan D. Murphy. This is where we unleash truth and freedom with no holds barred, no fear, and no limits. Come and evolve beyond the matrix with me and thrive, not just survive. This is a realm of empowering, uncommon awareness. This is my Truthiverse. While most drinking water looks the same, not all water is created equal. Discover how one machine can filter, charge, and restructure regular tap water into five different types of water with over 60 different uses. Learn how you can nourish your body and detox your home from electrolyzed reduced water rich in molecular hydrogen and potent antioxidants for drinking to highly alkalized and oxidized waters replacing toxic cleaners and personal products in your kitchen, bathroom, and laundry. To learn more about this life-changing water, visit brendandmurphy.com water. All right, welcome to this episode of Truth of Verse. I'm joined once again by Alison McDowell, who is, in my view at least, well, she's kind of become my go-to for what's happening in the bigger picture with technocracy, you know, where is where are the think tanks like the World Economic Forum trying to take us? What was the, you know, Cooties 19 really uh, engineered for? Um, and all this kind of stuff. She's really on the ball. She is a mother, uh, a blogger. And your website was wrenching the gears, am I correct? Yep. Yep, I remembered that correctly. So <laughs> I'm very pleased with myself there. My uh, my my dad brain is not functioning at its best at the moment, to be honest. Um, five months into the uh, the parent life. <laughs> but um, you're doing great. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I tell myself that. So um, yeah, listen, I wanted to to just like let you kind of go go uh all guns blazing here and, and talk about a few things um where where are we at since we spoke i think we spoke maybe six to eight months ago and it was sort of you know we've talked about the wef and and you know this kind of stuff and the technocracy um the monetization like these insidious kind of um the ways that edu- education is being hijacked and monetized and you know we're be- becoming turned into these data banks and all this kind of sort of sort of stuff so I mean, where are we at now? What's the state of play in the grand big scheme of things for, you know, technocracy and all that jazz? Um, well, I mean, it seems like, I mean, for me, a lot of my work, because I came into it not from the health space, is looking at sort of the larger systems engineering around sort of data and profiling and this police state infrastructure that's being woven into the social safety net, right? Like that's sort of the angle that I bring to it. And I, I think um, I'm gradually, I think it's becoming more discussed um, within the sort of alternative media circles, but the linking of um, the passporting systems and the, the, the medical geofencing is sort of what I call it, uh, linked to your biometrics to these financial instruments. And I think that's where I would look like if I could get the sort of the health freedom community or like the sovereignty people or what, like to actually understand that this isn't simply about surveillance or profiling in a general way, or, you know, not to dismiss that that isn't a problem. It's a huge problem, but that is linked to a financial apparatus Mm -hmm. that is woven throughout every aspect of our lives and embedded within this public-private partnership, right? Like the government, the corporate government um, structure, that would be really big. But I think right now everyone is still focused on like medical passports or, you know, and they're not seeing how it links to 
um, the augmented reality, the spatial web, globalized labor, um, blockchain identity and predictive profiling, people still don't have all those moving parts. And that's why I'm like trying to kind of hold everyone's hand and say like, yes, th this is the thing. Like it, it actually has a certain apparatus. It's, it's presenting in different countries in different ways, but there is a playbook that if you could learn to understand who the partners are, like in the US, it's coming through the Chamber of Commerce and the United Way and these, the YMCA and the Boys and Girls Club. And, and the, you know, once we get single payer healthcare, it's going to come with internet of things sensors, and then people, I think, could start to decode some of the developments in a more systematic way. But I feel like we're still just chunking it out into like the health focus and the health people need to broaden their range a little bit. And I think the last time we spoke, we spoke about um, food systems too. Um, I think the big development, and I spoke a couple weeks ago in detail with my friend Zakia, um, is the largest deployment of blockchain digital identity that is being done in coordination with Cardano in Ethiopia. So that deployment is not a health deployment, it's actually an education deployment. And they're putting 5 million students and teachers in Ethiopia on blockchain. And so I need for the health freedom community to understand why that's significant and how it relates to the medical passports. Yeah, because in a cloud-based world, they have all these different pilot programs. It's sort of like, you know, designing a car and having these different components built in different countries, and then they all come together at the end. And so, if no one's paying attention to, if nobody knows that, I mean, very few people know the actual um, design of what it is that's being built, and you just perfect your one little piece over here. You don't realize that you're you're not building a sports car; you're building a you know, an MRAP tank or something like that. You know, you don't really know. You just think you've got this nice little bit over here. And so the Cardano deployment is hugely important in Ethiopia, um, not the least of which is the fact that they are partnered with Ben Gertzel of Hanson Robotics and OpenCog and SingularityNet. And so in that way, their education deployment, which is going to be linked to performance data analytics, for students and, and Hoskinson, Charles Hoskinson has said like in his own presentation that it's going to be super great that their product is aligned with the interest of the government and that your metadata, which is all the sort of digital dust from you from very early ages will create this robust profile and the government will know if you're a good actor and that if you are, um, you know, the kind of person who is worthy to get a job, right? And we know that the plan is this larger mass dispossession that most people won't have a job. So like he's very upfront about it. And in fact, um, oh, I'm, I'm trying to remember his last name, O'Connor, I think, uh, the guy who's his, the contact, Cardano's contact in Africa, you know, he's sort of equating it to coffee beans, like a quality coffee bean and like supply chain tracking so that you can, you know, of course, get the most for the Ethiopian coffee farmer, um, but that it also could be for health records, right? And so if you understand tracking quality of supply through the supply chain and through processing systems as applying to children, right? Um, and this metadata and getting a job, then that's a pretty um, different way of viewing one's human trajectory, right? Mm. Um, as it this increasingly gets automated. So I guess that's sort of where I'm at in this moment is um, trying to get more people comfortable talking about that part of it beyond the medical, the medical side of things. Because I think 
there are so many very, very brilliant people who are very deeply steeped in the medical thing who keep sort of lifting up and perseverating. Like, here's all of the 50 other ways that this doesn't make sense. I'm like, no, but it makes, it does make sense. We understand the end game yeah. is both social control mechanisms and feeding your data, which is what the open cog Hanson robotics into the robots. Like their idea is to actually pull the data out of the children and use the machine learning to train the robots to be human. So it's this very perverse scenario, mm. which, you know, um, I know it sounds crazy, but that's, I mean, are you familiar with Sophia the robot? You know, the human yeah, yeah. robot? Yeah. Yep. So, and, and he's working like that, that open cog, which is the brain of Sophia the robot, which was developed in large part in Ethiopia through ICOG labs. Um, was was that early technology was backed by Epstein, right? You know, so yeah, yeah. So there's there's all of these layers, and you know they're like so you know Sophia is a very highly charged, significant name, the robot, yeah, yeah. and we said, oh, Ethiopia is such an important country, and um, you know, uh, the people who programmed her brain after her native language of English was teaching her, um, is it Amharic, the, the language of Ethiopia? Because right. Ethiopia was so important. That was her second language. Okay, wow. So there's like both this, um, in, in my sense, like a predatory capitalist program of taking over Africa, like through this digital system, which isn't just Ethiopia, but they're looking at other countries yeah. through their telecom system, through property rental systems, through other digital platforms. Um, but the, the, they would feed this into this humanoid robot. Which has these again, sort of the and all of this other stuff going on. It's kind of creepy. Super creepy. Super creepy. So digital know. colonization on steroids. Um, and so yeah. to, to break it down for people, so you're saying something along the lines of this Cardano thing, the the blockchain thing, is being brought into Ethiopia, and they're going to be giving these kids what is going to be marketed as sort of educational material that they're going to be, you know, interfacing with technology that they'll be learning on. And then as they do that, that yeah. data is then harvested and fed into robots like Sophia. Is that basically what you're saying? That's kind of the plan. So, okay. so the, um, you know, education is UN Sustainable Development Goal 4. So all of this is going to be framed as data, right? Like we have to, to make sure that we're, we have equity and that we are accountable and that whatever aid we might send to different countries is used well, because really it's a colonial project. I think this augmented reality world, they really want the children of Africa and India to code this thing, both for, I think, low wage, like child's, you know, un, you know unfree labor, yeah. but also I think that there may be sort of a, a spiritual component to, to that aspect of, of targeting those countries and also racialized component. Um, but it's so the data metrics are tied to these impact markets, these human capital impact markets. So they'll say, oh, well, we need these scores to go up. Right. Or we need to show that the, this improvement on workforce um, skills badges attained or, you know, whatever these metrics are will will require the educational system to be delivered through digital technologies. And a major player in the space is UNICEF, which is, you know, the U United Nations, the child focused, and they are pushing virtual reality education and education on not only laptops, um, or tablets, but even phones. So there, there are various uh, uh, programs. There's something called One Billion or um, One Tab, where essentially they they brand it. There's like a little 
child in Africa sitting on a dirt hill with a phone. It's like a three-year-old child in the middle of this natural landscape, like staring at a phone. And they're like, Curious Learning, that's the name of the company. It's tied to MIT, the war machine, right? So in the World Bank and UNICEF and everything. And they're like, this is school. Is this little child sitting on a dirt hill? Because this is what UNICEF has said, like around Nigeria. Well, those kids are never going to have many for a real school or real teachers. I mean, I don't say real, but they say like school or there's no money for that. But we will boost these kids into this 21st century economy by giving them virtual reality education. And that one of the platforms for the VR headset, they've got at least three or four different pilots in, in Africa, India, and Chile, um, culturally appropriate, all of them, right? <laughs> um, is that they, one of them was set up to be gestural coding. It was post-literacy. It's like, you don't even actually have to read anymore. You just experience media and then you use your haptics and you code. You just, it's almost like, I guess, performative dance or something, but you're coding with your hands. And so I know this sounds very unreal, but this is all coming out of um, the UNICEF Innovation Fund, whose primary funder is Disney. And it's based in, in Santa Clara, California on the Singularity campus, like Singularity University campus hosts the UNICEF Innovation Fund. And this is what they're pushing in African India. So when, when, when Hoskinson is saying stuff like your metadata is gonna decide if you're a good faith actor and worthy of having a job, that means from the time you're like six and they strap a virtual reality headset on you, the biometrics they're pulling out will be able to create really robust profiles, not simply of what you know, but of who you are, how you emotionally respond to media to programming, to literal programming. So the extent to which education has always programmed children it will be even more insidious because a lot of these digital medias are framed to actually train neural pathways to actually create physiological differences in how people's brains function, mm. which I know sounds far-fetched, but they've already been developing. And it's always framed as dual use. Like, oh, look, if you play this video game, um, you can restore function in someone who's had a stroke. Like, and who wouldn't be against that, right? Like who wants the grandma to like not play Wii in the VR headset and like retain function? Of course, we all think that's wonderful, right? But they, what they don't say is, by the way, we can also apply it to your eight-year-old and train their brain to be the thing we want them to be. Yeah, yeah. And so what is it that uh, in that context, in that discussion, what is it that they want to engineer, you know, the child to to be? What do they, what do they want to... How do they want to manipulate them? Why? What are they pushing them towards? Well, I mean, this is somewhat speculative at this point, right? I mean, they don't, so far they haven't said, oh, you know, I, the next big construction project is the augmented reality world. I mean, that's, you know, if my, my framing is that, is that the next empire is a digital empire that is both, it's two phases. One is to digitally overlay on the material world and then the second is to build a virtual world that is not unlike the gaming worlds that have already been constructed, and, but that is all coding. So that's quite a bit of work. Um, and there's a lot of training data. So even the impact data that is being fed from the headsets or the online tablets into the, the, uh, you know, the learning data silos has to be cleaned up and made useful, right? And, and it, Part of this is that the digital identity that will be assigned to everyone that may start as a medical passport, it may start as a uh, transcript, a blockchain transcript, it may start as a, here's your um, 
telephone subscription contract. We'll give you a digital identity. It can come in many different ways. Is the interoperability is the way one piece of data relates to another piece, to another piece, to another piece over time. And that's what is, is really important for the machine learning is the relational data. It's just to have lots of disconnected data. It's not that useful. There's a bit of use to it, but it's the interoperable data that they really want. So I think these kids are meant to code the virtual world, a lot of them. Um, as I said, the system is not, it's a lot of work. And if you look at how, you know, how are the railroads built, right? You, you bring in immigrant labor, you bring in people that you think that you can dominate, uh, you dispossess, you pit people against one another for low wages because the railroad people, barons, robber barons, they didn't pay top wages to get their railroads built. And this is the same equivalency. So I see that this coding is going to come through um, children, you know, particularly in, you know, developing world, you know, global south, um, dispossessed people, refugee populations in that, in that way, war and economic unrest creates that. Um, imprisoned people. So, you know, people who are incarcerated and it will be framed as like learn to code and, you know, improve your situation. Um, so, so I think it's both the building that is the skill. And then the other piece is that I think they want to turn them also into these avatars that they can be like commodified in a digital realm too. And that is the transhumanist element, which is kind of where things go once you get to, um, you know, the digital twinning, you know, and the stuff that you, you know, then, you know, these folks are, they, they talk straight up about wanting to create either cybernetic beings, which are human and machines, or virtualized people that are avatar people. Mm -hmm. And in that virtual space, they can then be managed as digital assets, you know, and digital consumers. And sure, it's yeah. new market in digital realms, and it's all on blockchain. Yeah, highly. And at that point, once you're in there, in that world, you're highly... Uh, subject to their 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 um, parameters and their manipulations. Um, in the military world, sure. Know, people don't think of those digital worlds as as militarized, but they are. Okay, so when someone says to you, "Oh, well, what do you mean it's mil militarized?" Because people think militarized, they think guns and bombs and and soldiers on the ground, you know. But how's it militarized in a way? Like, how can you explain that to people? Well, I mean, the cloud computing system is a military research project, Cool, you know, and most of the entities that manage the structure of the cloud, if not straight out coming out of the defense department are um, maintain significant contracts with defense departments, you know, Amazon web services and these things like they're essentially extensions of they're, you know, defense contractors, but they're, what they're offering is, is cyber services, you know, these data services. Um, there's quite a bit of overlap between the creation of uh, defense simulation games and video games, gaming industry. There's the people who are coding those industries, there's fluidity there. And so, you know, most people wouldn't necessarily if you're not coding video games, you would not know that if you're not in that industry, but there's a lot of overlap between simulating uh, defense campaigns and playing video games. You know, it's the same, same, same people. They, it's like revolving door. They just go from defense to private back and forth. Yeah. And um, in fact, one of the things that's really interesting, if you look into uh, sort of the development of this, uh, there was a, a gathering 
It uh, ultimately resulted in the creation of the University of Southern California's Institute for Creative Technologies. Um, and it was in, I think like the early 2000s and both the defense industry and Hollywood said, you know, we're both very interested in this simulation um, capacity building and wouldn't it be great if we could collaborate? So the Army Research Lab and high level executives from Disney came together to create this institute, which has since been really focused for nearly 20 years on the creation of synthetic people. So all of that is being framed as like, oh, here is your, um, you know, Susie, your intake counselor for, you know, a veteran with post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's all framed as like people who are really edgy would prefer to talk to a chatbot who looks like a woman that's run by an algorithm than an actual person. And that's how it's framed. It's like a kindness because people who are so traumatized, like they prefer to deal with um, synthetic people and not actual people. Um, yeah, yeah. so yeah, that, that's what they've been building. But then once they have that apparatus, then Susie becomes the person who like signs you, you know, out for your rental car, you know, or all sorts of other things, you know, sells you your barbecue at Walmart, like these synthetic people creep out from the defense applications into other spaces. Um, and one of the things that one of the many things you've touched on, um, which I'm going to come back to is, and, and it's related to what you were just saying, the idea that, well, not the idea, but the fact that we're moving in a direction where people, increasing numbers, like massive numbers of people are going to be uh, jobless. Um, and I was listening to a talk by uh, Yuval Noah Harari, I think. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. Um, and he was saying, you know, he was giving this speech to an elite group, right? So he's he's talking to the, the kinds of people who are kind of engineering this type of agenda. Um and it was quite interesting to hear the elitist sentiment there, but he was saying, you know, basically, you know, if you want to be useful in the, in the world that's coming, learn to code. <laughs> yeah. They want us to build the prison. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's a fake out and they want the children to build it. And, you know, a lot of that is around STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math education. And then a little bit, sometimes steam, they'll throw a little bit of art in there because they have to keep the art aligned with the military programs. Right. And um, yeah, it's, it's pretty intense. And most people, again, they're not thinking military, they're thinking it means um, like large equipment, right? They're not necessarily thinking cyber security, which increasingly yeah. it's once you build this augmented reality world, there's the building it and then there's the defending it because it's all like a lot of it's really crappy software and it's hacked all the time. So it's like, no one is going to be able to write, you know, the next novel or a play or, you know, do ice ballet or, you know, whatever, because like, we're all going to have to like, just sit in a closet and defend the, the augmented reality. <laughs> multiverse. You know, it's like, you can't use your, the gifts you have. You have to do the thing that has been assigned to you by the military apparatus. And uh, otherwise you won't be able to, you know, go and use your social credits to buy a loaf of bread kind of thing. I mean, that's why I'm trying to, to frame this resistance to what's happening as a global peace movement against AI. I mean, yeah, right. Because to me, that's what it resonates. It, it is something that is at um, that is looking to eliminate natural life on this planet, mm. um, and and that this is a force that is a globalized force, and that we have to recognize that what we're fighting is it what what we're um, asserting is the right for natural life to continue, not just for humans, but for all the other beings that would be pumped up with nanoparticles too. You know, yeah, and yeah. 
Well, I mean, speaking of nanoparticles, I mean, I want to come back to it because one of the great things about you is that you're you are very good at bridging. Um, you, you know, you you were pointing out that there's this in the health movement, in the health arena, people are very kind of blinkered there and they get stuck on, oh well, you know, the needle's toxic. Why would you do that kind of thing? They they don't see the bigger direction this is moving in. Um, and I like how you bridge those worlds. And we we touched briefly on the, the medical passes that are being pushed very hard now, very very hard, even in Australia where. Our prime minister is just a treasonous piece of shit who is fully on board with the uh, the agenda. Um, so, with the 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 um, you know the nano nanoparticles and the injections and the the uh, medical passes and the digital identities, can you just for the for the people in the health arena in particular, um, can you just link them together in a way that it sort of will help them to grasp how that all ties? Like, why is it that the politicians are pushing so hard for these passports for us to be able to fly and get on a plane like we've always done? Why is it now that we have to have an injection? What's in the thing what, that they want in us so badly? And what's going on there? Well, for me, I think it's less, well, what should I say? Um, like, I don't come from a medical background. So I can't make assertions about what I think may be the end game of all of this. I think some people think massive depopulation. My sense is the way they talk about transhumanism and that they need to build this thing, that while that may be an element that is not exclusive, that it's far more likely that they would like to create chronically ill people that they could then more easily manage and sure. make code this thing. <laughs> yeah. And like, if you look at what's um, happening in Japan, like the moonshot project, and they're talking about like cyborg avatar capitalism and, and living through um, either exoskeletons or remote robots or other things is, you know, Tokyo has already been piloting um, remote control robots where people who have um, like, who are paralyzed or who have really significant physical limitations and are bedridden um, work um, through a robot in a cafe and that how liberating that is, is that you're, you know, in bed, but then you, you, you're a cafe bus boy or something like that. And, and so on the one hand, it, it, you could say, yeah, it would be nice to give people some options, um, to, but it's always this dual use. And I can see very likely that it will be tied to disability payments. Yeah. And for people who have chronic illness and who may not be able to get out of their homes, this haptic robotic, this remote work will be like, oh, okay, well, now we've revisited your case file. Now we found that you actually can do this work and you must do this work or you will not be able to, you know, maintain having shelter and food or, or what have you, even though maybe the, the nature of that work is not rewarding and is, is difficult or, you know, you know, th it's not going to be great work that they're going to make you do, but they're going to come back with the robots and say, when well, I work through a robot, um, Okay, so anyway, back to the medical passports. Um, what they most, what they need, they need the tracking. Yep. So they're building this augmented reality world, the spatial web, you know, that's going to magnify beyond just us carrying a smartphone in our pocket and having a, you know, a predictive profiling of where we are on a given day based on our past behavioral patterns, which we already have. It's going to be much more granular and nuanced. And increasingly, they would like to be able to implement geofencing. So with satellite technologies, they could set a perimeter for you, right? That the perimeter could be very small. It could be your house. You're not allowed to leave your house. Or it could be, oh, okay, we've decided now you get, you know, five blocks or you get five miles or 50 or whatever. 
And it's part of this gaslighting that they could just arbitrarily based on some algorithmic either prediction or past behavior um, decide, you know, what your, your geographic containment is. And that's why I'm trying to very much talk about the issue of borders, which may not be a, such a big deal where you guys, since you're an island, but um, like border control is a big point of discussion, especially within people who think that they're going to protect jobs by managing the borders better. And I'm like, well, once you get the remote robots, I mean, it's a totally different ballgame. The, the nature of borders is going to change. Um, so they need you trackable. They need you in the supply chain. They need how you're coded. And at this point, it doesn't necessarily have to be a biosensor. I mean, they talk very clearly about that, that the biotech community is developing sophisticated biosensors, not simply for illness, but for a lot of other things that we, you know, have biosensors on people who are ostensibly well, just to monitor your, your function. Um, it could simply be that you have a biometric um, identification, like your retinal scan or some other, um, you know, thumbprint or what have you that's in the system that is linked to um, a QR code that lives on your phone. So it doesn't actually have to be in you like this mm -hmm. idea of like, Oh, I'm, I've got a chip. It may very easily go that direction. But at this point, when they try to dismiss people and say, Oh, it's not a chip. Well, it doesn't actually have to be, it could simply be a laminated card with a QR code that's yeah. linked to your biometrics in some database somewhere. Mm. And that's actually what they, they started in um, Austin. Uh, uh, Robert Wood Johnson and Bloomberg they set up a, a program for unhoused people and they put them on blockchain uh, with just a laminated card. So it didn't have to be any more sophisticated than that, but that was their track. And that, then they would be able to aggregate all of this data. So in order to both control society as automation comes online, uh, to gather signals intelligence about what individuals are doing, what they're predicted to do, what groups are doing, how groups are interacting, you know, swarm behaviors, it's social physics and these, you know, the five eyes, you know, the deep state intelligent communities that are increasingly automated as well as the financial markets that are betting on what these outcomes are of social unrest or whatever, want as much data poured in as possible. And they mm -hmm. want, they want your data point and they want it in relation to all the other data points to, to make these predictions and then to gamble on them essentially and decide what their strategies are. So they need to get us on the, on the blockchain. Yeah. And I had thought originally that it might come through education, but that was only going to be a very small subset, um, a, a transcript. You would get a transcript on blockchain and that would be too slow. And so once we have this biosecurity scenario that's laid out, that sounds like it's going to be permanent, then you can enforce everyone to have this biometric identity. And then if you, and then if you refuse, then you suddenly become the suspect, you know, uh, of the state, you know, in your relation to the state, if you choose not to be tracked on the supply chain. Um, so that's, that's sort of the scenario. The thing is, once they have the digital identity, it is going to be linked in with your, um, your electronic identification to the government. Mm -hmm. And so this goes hand in hand with e-government, uh, open data government, data analytics, data dashboards, it's all being sold to the public as like, hey, you know, your, your government that was like doing kickbacks and giving jobs to, you know, the nephew and da, da, da. We're going to be super accountable now. We're going to have all this open data and then people could just use it and make do amazing things with this data. Although really it's only companies that are using it. Like in Philly, they use the guy who pushed open data, um, had his own company that developed predictive policing software. 
Like he used our data to develop predictive policing software that he then sold back to the city and franchised to a bunch of other cities. So it's not like your neighbor is going to come up with a great idea for a community garden and you can use the open data. No, it's not that. It's essentially a corporate theft of the commons to yeah. do that, but they make it sound good. And so that's what Estonia is that model of, of e-government. Did, you, you don't even have to live in Estonia now. You can be an e-citizen of Estonia, right? You can pay your taxes. You can, you can do also get insurance, all this stuff. You don't even have to live there. That's this electronic government. So your blockchain identifier, um, whether it comes as a medical passport, whether it comes as a, um, a digital transcript for your education, whether that comes from your disability uh, payment setup, which is what they have in Australia, the, uh, the disability uh, access was put on blockchain as a pilot. It can come in many ways, but once they have the toe in the door, they layer on everything else. Say, so, oh, we started with disability, but look, now we're going to put your housing on here. You can put your food, but it all lives on your phone for now. And then if you show up at some protest that you're not supposed to be at, well, we'll know when we can turn off your SIM card. Yeah. And then that money's gone. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe they, maybe they start out with like the YouTube thing, right? You know, they'll, they'll be like, here's your warning. Here's yeah. your warning drummer to you. You know, here, we just wipe you forever, you know? And um, so that's, that's what I'm trying to say. It's the layering of every single aspect of your relationship to the state that then becomes part of a larger profiling um, and part of these pay for success finance gambling debts. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's very much like what you're describing is very much how technocracy has been talked about um, even before we got to the, I mean, in recent decades, uh, you know, reading people like, um, oh, what's his name now? It'll come, come to me later. But the technocracy is kind of exactly what you've described, but the technology now with blockchain and all this is just allowing the technocratic mindset to, it's empowered it and emboldened it so much now that what they wanted to do was monitor and surveil and control every single facet of human life. I mean, in the home, you know, when you turn this light on, when you turn mm -hmm. it off, whether you can use the, the washing machine at a certain time of day or not, all of this stuff. I mean, and now, you know, what you're describing here is that taken to the nth degree. Yeah. Well, and that's, um, I think maybe Patrick Wood, I mean, he's here at least in the US. And Thank you. Yep. A lot. So, yeah, I mean, it's, in, it's, it's, a, it's a looking at society as an engineering problem. And, and, you know, when it technocracy really came to sort of a larger fruition in the, in the depression, it was out of the Columbia University School of Industrial Engineering, right? So Ivy League University, it was embedded there. And it's very interesting because, you know, Columbia Teachers College is involved in paper success finance, right? And, these, um, and in fact, one of the major players in the development of this um, space right now, his name is Michael Crow, and he's the president of Arizona State University, but he came from Columbia University. He left Columbia, he came to lead Arizona State. And at the same time, he was the founding board chair of InQtel, which is the venture capital arm of the CIA. And one of their investments among many was Niantic, which developed the augmented reality with the Pokemon Go. Okay. So this, this layer, you know, if no one told you, by the way, the augmented reality is run by the, the, the deep state CIA intelligence community, like now, you know, right. Mm. It, you know, that's what Pokemon go was, but yeah. he's connected with, um, you know, new, uh, new America, Google, Eric Schmidt, all of the ed tech companies. He's working in China and Beijing. Like there's this major global reach and um, yeah, they want the inputs and outputs. They want to know, 
what did we put into you in terms of public investment and what, what did we get out? What was our economic rate of return? And then in this future where most people aren't working, it's not going to be your economic rate of return. It's going to be your compliance rate of return. Did you do all of the things that you, we told you to do? Yeah. How long did you wear your mask for today? (laughs) Right. I know. And and all of the data isn't of itself a resource. I mean, Eric Schmidt said it years ago, you know, um, data is the new oil, right? Like we are, it's a new extraction industry. A lot of big oil, I think, is getting into the data analytics field. And I was just doing a lot of work in Dallas and on my little sis stuff. And they pulled like two days, dozens and dozens and dozens of records that I ended up in. But it's because, you know, the oil interests are pivoting into data analytics and biotech. And, you know, we're not supposed to talk about that part. Um, <laughs> and, a, and a lot of it is linked into education into the, because not only do they want to normalize this transhumanist avatar world and get the kids to build it, but they've got to, they've got to bring them up, right. So that they don't know any different, you know, people like me, we're, 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 we're too steeped in the old ways, such as they are. Um, so we're a lost cause, but they want the kids, they want to bring the kids along. And I, you know, I was mentioning to you before we, we started, started in that I was just out for several hours protesting in the middle of, uh, North Broad street in Philadelphia, outside of our school district headquarters, because I, I have a friend who is a high school teacher who is protesting the conditions for in-person learning, uh, which are really minimal and very, um, mentally harmful to the kids and not good education. And he's just taking a stand to say, I, I, as, a, as a person who actually cares about kids, I can't do this. And so we were there for three hours and on the way walking back to my car, um, I passed a building and I think his, his partner had pointed it, had told me, he said, she said, there's this big warehouse that takes up a whole city block, huge from like the thirties, huge data center. And it, it didn't hit me until we were walking by and like all of the ground level windows were covered in, you know, adhesive paper, like advertising paper. And it said, your journey to the cloud begins here. Okay. So that's the advertising on the big window, your journey. And it's literally kitty cross from the school district headquarters. Right. And then you keep going. And then the the adhesive said, no, coming soon, esports, esports, you can be a leader, you can be a, you know, discoverer, you can, and it's gearing to kids. And it had like a very, like, you know, sexually suggestive, like woman superhero character. And then had another guy with like all sort of like tech military apparatus who was, you know, ex- the whole thing was green, but it exuded a, a person of color. So they were definitely targeting certain groups to say, look, you can come do esports. So the ground floor is esports. The top of it is all a data center and it's kitty cross from our school district headquarters, where essentially they've trapped the children on Zoom for over a year, mining their data. And it's feeding into these systems. But if you don't have a holistic view of it, you wouldn't necessarily, most people I don't think would make that connection. And I was out on the sidewalk, just it's not a heavily trafficked pedestrian corridor, but trying to talk to people, like trying to have this conversation. I had some print material, like we're concerned about the surveillance of children through their educational systems and the programming and what the militarization. And, you know, do you, I, I mean, do you feel like you want to hear it? given that, given the state of play there and the psychology you're dealing with, I mean, do you feel like there, there is a solution there or is the solution for people to exit the system and, you know, set up alternative schooling types of things? Well, see, that's the thing about blockchain is that people who want other options, the 
plan was always to disassemble public education as a physical place. Um, in, in the United States, this was happening through something called Knowledge Works and Strive Together. And they talked about learning ecosystems. The city would be your classroom, which if you didn't understand that the city they're talking about is an augmented reality city run by the CIA, might sound cool. Like, yeah. I love Philadelphia. Like, we have amazing things. If I had to navigate it in a police state that is under panopticon surveillance um, with facial recognition cameras that were tracking my every move and I was told these are the 20 things you have to do today and it's impossible, that's not so great, right? And that's the direction it's headed. Um, so once they disassemble all the schools, they'll give you a digital voucher that will be with your digital identity, which started out as your medical passporting system. But by the way, we love you so much. Here's you know $8,000 to spend on education. Only for the pricing, 85% of your education time will have to be online classes, which will enrich private markets, which will suppress labor because eventually these classes will be run either just on video recordings or on chatbots with no people. And by the way, none of those things pay into pension funds. And um, then the little bit of extra, maybe you get in person, all of the community-based resources, your libraries, your community sports leagues, your maker spaces, theaters, if they take the voucher, you can be sure the state is going to ask for the data, the impact data back, right? So all of the things that unschooling communities or homeschooling communities traditionally used, they'll be co-opted into the program. So unless you're prepared to like build your own library, build your own community theater, build your own makerspace, you're going to be out of luck. You're going to be essentially left at the kitchen table with books. And like, maybe you can go like run around the park with like-minded kids. But then what happens when you're 18? Because all of these experiences that you're earning online or in with wearable technology at the cooking kitchen at your local library, which is what we have, like, why would they throw out all the books and install a cooking kitchen? Well, it's for wellness behaviors and team building so that they can track you for that. Well, you get all of these little micro credits and badges so that when you're 18, the AI will know how to sort you when you apply for your gig job for the week. Okay, so you've done this whole thing. Well, you've got out of it. You, you're the person who never did that thing. What happens when they, you show up to be sorted by the AI? I don't know what to do with you. Mm. And there's a really good book. It's called um, Feed by M.T. Anderson. It's a young adult book. And um, it talks about this future. And actually the heroine is a, is a homeschool kid, like in high school, and she's not on the feed. She, she tries to mess up the algorithm. So she'll go to the shopping places and touch on all sorts of weird things. So they don't know how to slot her. And her, her dad was like a professor of dead languages, like cobalt, you know, and things like that, you know, like that's the framing. Um, but she becomes ill and then no one will invest in her medical care because they don't know how to profile her. They don't know she doesn't fit. Yeah. And, and so that is my charge is one, there are a lot of people who are like, well, let's just remove ourselves. And, um, you know, I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to judge people on that, but know that if you remove yourselves, the thing that you think is going to be there to, uh, enrich your child's learning experience is not going to be the thing you think you have to build that too. And then you're going to have to build an economy for them to go, um, have a, you know, a, a way of earning a living that, is stable and gives them satisfaction, right? You have to do all those things. And then what happens to the kids that can't get out? And that's, so for me, 
when people are like, well, let's just let the whole public system all crumble. It's terrible. Well, I understand it is terrible. I mean, I, I didn't at the time, like I've come to that realization that it's serving this particular function and that function is becoming ever more brutal. Um, but does that mean that the kids who can't get out, we just say, you, you're not worth it. Like some of us who can should say, no, these kids are worth it too. Like we should then maybe fight for a public system that actually does serves the public good and serves for an equitable and abundant future for all the kids, even though it's never been that way, but it should be aspirationally. So yeah. the kids who don't have anyone to stand up for them, I don't think they're disposable. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's, 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 yeah, it's not looking very good. Is it? It's pretty, it's a pretty grim picture. I mean, the, the fight is, is really just starting. But the thing is, is like, if you're willing to, to engage, you find good people. Yeah. Like we're in the middle of this engagement. And if we, we were not, we could go probably 10 or 15 years, just sort of petsing around with people who were fine, but like, maybe we would like barbecue with or something. I don't know. Like, but don't necessarily have a deep, meaningful connection. So it's terrible that this is all happening. I don't celebrate it in any way, but when you show up, the other people who show up are pretty incredible. Yeah. And then you actually have real connect. Like if, if you can get to the place that you're not just so shocked and despondent that you can't engage, which, you know, I get that and some days that are better than others, but today, okay, five of us showed up on that median. Mm. They're all awesome people that I can say, Hey, <laughs> you restore my faith in humanity. There are good people out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, inaction, right, is is not helpful on any level. I mean, at the bare minimum, we, we've got to engage, right? So I think you're, you're yeah, I, I completely agree with that sentiment. Um, I want to sort of mm, take a tangent. I want to throw a few things at you if that's all right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, have you have you been following at all the uh, Rana Fulmish uh, legal situation? Um, not closely. Yeah. I mean, I guess because for me, it's I just I for me, I realize it's not strictly about a medical thing. So sure, yeah. I, I figure those those folks are doing their thing that they're doing. Um, it, do you feel like it could be a useful thing, nonetheless? I do not feel that the court systems generally are set up to take care of people. I agree with you there. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I think appealing to authorities, uh, appealing to the existing authoritative systems and hoping for redress while um, I don't mean to be dismissive or to, but they were set up that way to, I think to co create an outlet for people to feel like they were being heard, but I don't think they were meant to fundamentally at least in the US, I mean, I, I sure. know it, it. And then even in the United Nations, I mean, like these global councils are set up by the same people that are running the game. So um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there might be a good element in mobilizing people towards a common cause out beyond whatever happens in the court system and in sure. and of itself. Is a good yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, even if it's just a, as acting as a, a sort of lightning rod to to augment and mobilize people and, and move in a constructive direction, that's probably better than than doing nothing, I suppose. <laughs> but see, if someone like that actually could deconstruct it and say, 
beyond the medical implications, this idea of an ongoing biosecurity state that's tied to a militarized financial apparatus is in, like immoral, right? That that is not legal to, um, against people's consent, tie them, create an infrastructure that will tie them into contractual obligations, right? Um, mm. Beyond their control, like that we would ultimately be securitizing the futures of children. To me, that is a much more interesting argument mm. is to take a legal case that this is actually going to be a new form of either digital slavery or feudalism, and then lay out the apparatus, which is the blockchain identity system as such, beyond the medical imposition. Um, and, and to me, if I had people paying attention, lawyers who would actually broaden the scope, that would be incredibly helpful because this whole thing of augmented reality is fundamentally built on contract law. Yep. It's a legal apparatus. So where are the lawyers doing that part? Like, that's what I would actually like. I mean, I'm not trying to dismiss other people, but like if the, the amount of resources being thrown into the um, stuff around this particular episode um, were mobilized into looking at the structural nature of the problem and getting ahead of it. Like, I mean, we're not ahead of it, but at least <laughs> not waiting till it shows up on our doorstep and says, by the way, your blockchain, hey, you signed up for your phone contract and now you're part of a neo-feudalist debt colony. Like, that would be great. <laughs> But I don't know how to get to those people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> about a year. <laughs> yeah. Um, did I hear you earlier? I think the sound quality dropped out just momentarily. But you mentioned, did you say Epstein? Yeah, I, with the um, it was funding uh, Ben Gertzel's OpenCog, the software for Sophia the Humanoid Robots. Well, it was the earlier edition of Sophia the Robot. It wasn't her, but it was the the R and D that went into creating her brain. Okay. Are you able at all to elaborate on the Epstein aspect of that? Um, just that his foundation was funding OpenCog, which is yeah. Ben Gertzel's. Yeah. I mean, that's, I have to, actually, I did like a two and a half hour presentation with the Kia on it and I have the slides and stuff that, you know, it's, it's not hidden. It's, I mean, it's still up on the internet that, you know, him, his foundation talked about funding the Hanson Robotics. So. Okay, yeah, yeah. No, I would watch that with interest, actually. Um, so we'll have to get the link out there for people. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, before Sophia the Robot, there are also these little Sophias, and that's the other um, slightly, you know, this insidious idea of a surveillance toy. And, you know, I, I was trying to sort of engage with someone who was interested in talking with me, and he was starting a, like a, a toy company. It wasn't dolls, but it was like a like a Lego competitor, a STEM kind of design toy. And I was like, I'd love to talk about militarized toys, like in Hasbro, you know, because uh, Gilman Louie of Niantic came out of Hasbro and HP. You know, there's a lot of this smart toy technologies, um, the militarization, but he didn't want to talk to me about that. So, <laughs> um, but anyway, so Sophia also has this little doll size, which is a super creepy doll. And then they're in people's homes. And, you know, they're, they're capturing data. Um, there's, there's also, I can't remember the name, but there's another little a company that's doing social robots. Um, essentially, they're framing it locked down, like, oh, this is your social interaction for your child as they, they can safely interact with the robot. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really complicated. And, but the science fiction writers have been writing about it forever. There's a book, a, a group of short stories called The Robot Uprising. And one of the short stories is called like a, something like being a survivor of the Velveteen War. And it's about what happened when they gave their kids these smart toys. And then they, um, 
they got out of hand. Um, so, and I, I think it was something about when the kids started growing up, the robots like killed the kids because they could only be programmed for like kids. Like once you hit your teens, like the, your robot would come after you and like kill, kill your kids. So Jesus. yeah, it's um, <laughs> saying that that's exactly what's happening, but people need to have some awareness of like these forces that are behind um, the disruptive innovation. It's, it's. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if they're willing to, you know, to, to kill children with impunity or to kill what now 5,000 Americans, you know, at the point of a needle since the rollout. I mean, they obviously don't care about humans. So just understanding that on a basic level, I think is crucial. Um, okay. What else have I got here that I can throw at you? Um, Epstein and Bill Gates. Do you have much to say about Gates at the moment as far as this connection, the context we're in? You know, I think, like I, I sort of said before, like he provides cover for so many other people, <laughs> yeah. you know, and so he's, you know, he's the out in front person. Um, to me, I'm, I'm more interested in these capital flows and like the structure around, like when people are like, who are the they? We have no idea who they are. And I'm like, well, if you look at the list of the impact management project, because when we talk about the impact data, it's these asset holders, right? It's the Black Rocks, it's the Blackstone, it's the Bank of America, like a lot of stuff is probably where you maybe have your bank account or your pension is invested or these other things. So, you know, the, the reality is, is that the, um, I think in some ways the media, you know, they know how to manipulate us. Right. And so like they, they want for there to be a larger than life character that can be pointed out as the bad guy, right. Oh. The Schwab, the Gates and, and, you know, we were there last year and it was important to point out these things. Like for me in education, it's hard to imagine any educator who understands the damage that the Gates Foundation has done to public education, getting behind his public health access and like program. But to me at this point, if we're still lingering in that space, we're not actually unearthing the larger system, which is the way in which our investments are structured and our security, right? Our retirements are all invested in with companies that are in order to grow or doing things that harm our quality of life. Hmm. So it's a really messed up thing that, that anyone who might have a pool of assets, either through a pension fund or a 401k or what have you ends up being complicit in this program. So we're all in it. Hmm. It's not just the Bill Gates, although he's, you know, but if we actually want to fix the problem, we're all going to have to sort of own up to like, okay, so this isn't working. This, this investment scheme means that we all have to become cyborg avatars. Um, let's come up with a different plan of how to fund our pensions, right? <laughs> <laughs> let's at least explore options. Yeah, exactly. Do you feel like, are there any, I mean, are there any solutions that you think are actionable at the moment? Uh, you know, I mean, what can be done to, to, to slow this down I so this is part of it like I think I think the answer is beyond the material mm -hmm. I'm not trying to be like but I think there's something in sort of metaphysics or quantum like there's some in order for us to in, engage with these forces we cannot do it on the terms that they lay out because yeah, if we 100%. do that, we will never, you know, and so 
to me, that is why coming from like an energetic place of like a healing place or a, a place of love or healing or some human quality um, is really vitally important because I think that activates like the universe is on the side of life. You know, nature is on the side of life. There, there are many forces that we maybe can't quantify or put on a ledger or measure or call it as a weapon or anything like that. But there's quite a bit of the force of life that would wants to continue that we are a part of that continuum. Right. Mm. And so I think our call is to um, try to be in the world in a space of integrity and care and healing. <laughs> and I know that sounds really hard. And I think especially over the past month, I've been hearing, sensing more and more people, people are exhausted, people are overwhelmed, people are angry. Um, I think in many respects, the resistance movement is becoming a mirror of the thing that it doesn't, it's opposing, like it's mm -hmm. starting to mirror in ways that are not healthy mm -hmm. for the long term. which again, I'm not saying I'm not pointing fingers and saying you're it's natural that that would happen, but I think we have to be thoughtful about it, that if we start policing other people or pointing or being judgmental, that's exactly what this, this negative energy is, what this egregorish kind of thing feeds off of. Mm. So, um, and easier said than done, because there are a couple of people that really made me angry today when I was out trying to fly her, right? Like, I'm not saying it anyway, I'm perfect at it, but like, I know aspirationally what it should be. Um, so I think, uh, nobody wants this thing. Very few people, I think if they understood the bigger picture would want yeah. what they're putting out. And we have to have confidence that if we can tell the better narrative, if we can offer the better option, that people will come. And we have to figure out a way of framing a narrative that allows more people back in. And I, it's increasingly my feeling that a narrative framed around a health scenario isn't going to be it because people yeah. are deeply entrenched in both sides. And so we have to find a narrative that is more accessible. And to me, that feels like the children, right? If, if we were able to communicate that through various authoritarian structures, their goal was to claim the minds and spirits of children into this future that is no longer, is disconnected from natural life, yeah. right? And that is our charge, even if we don't have kids, but we're, you know, in this, and it's not just children, the other beings, right? You know, I talk about the bees or the trees, that this thing fundamentally is, a, is an anti-life program, the synthetic biology that's coming, this, this mechanism. So yeah, like we have to tell the better story. And I've been doing these little rituals. I don't know if you've been paying attention. I'm not like saying I'm any expert, but like the dandelions came to me this, this spring. It was like, you know, I, I spend my other time is I work at a botanic garden and I'm not really a person that works a horticulturalist. I mostly work doing data hygiene really. But this past year I've spent more time helping on the land and the dandelions came to me and I'm like, that's, um, I wrote a, a piece called the dandelion manifesto. And I you know dandelions are, they're on all continents except Antarctica. They're hardy. Um, they're medicinal for, um, a, a liver cleanse. So bile anger, um, <laughs> they're, they're, they're foraging, they're eating, they're free, they're available. They have the sun and the moon and the stars and, um, they're very transformative. And actually the story of, um, Theseus fighting the Minotaur, um, which I think is wall street. 
uh, that Hecate fed uh, Theseus for 30 days on dandelions before uh-huh. he fought the Minotaur. So I've been asking people to send me dandelions from all over. And I just got some today from Minnesota. And, um, and we're, we're taking them to New York. So we're going up to New York and we're doing these cleansings of these global financial institutions. And we're calling them out. And we're, we're saying, you don't have our permission, not in our name. And actually on Easter Sunday, 25 of us gathered outside on Park Avenue, outside the Council on Foreign Relations. And we said, not in our name, you're not going to do this social impact finance. And we, we tore up their foreign affairs magazine about social impact finance. And we put good intentions and dandelion leaves and, and made this quilted pillow with the heart. And we like left it in the tree pit outside. Um, but yeah, we, I, I went back a weekend before last and we, we visited actually um, the house of Morgan, JP Morgan and the Wall Street Bull and the New York Federal Reserve. And we gonged the Federal Reserve. We went around with our dandelion water, some of which was brought from upstate New York, the spring fed. And we um, we just scrubbed the steps and we said, like, like we left the scene. We said, you know, it's not okay what this thing is, right? And so again, how do you fight the Federal Reserve? We don't have the money of the Federal Reserve, but we have parts. And so there were about 20 of us and we, we walked the whole perimeter, takes up a whole city block. And we hmm. scrubbed all the steps, all the loading docks. And we said, no human capital bonds, you know, no putting people on blockchain, none of this. And, and, and my friend Marianne, who just gotten a new gong, she's doing gong healing. And so we gonged, we just gonged all the way around the federal reserve. And then we, um, yeah, we had this little ceremony in the park next door. So I don't know, that may seem very corny, but at the same time, how do you like go up against DARPA? How do you go up against the CIA? How do you go? And because what they most want is to frame us as, um, angry, dangerous people, right? And yeah. so I'm like, if you can be grounded in nature and you can come from a loving place. And what I try to say is, I'm, I'm not saying everyone, everybody has to do what I'm doing, right? But I can model some options. And the people who left, we learned things. We faced off against these structures, these power structures. And, and actually it was fascinating because one of the, the places we went was Federal Hall, which is where George Washington was inaugurated, the first president. It's a Greek temple right next to um, the stock exchange, the New York Stock Exchange. And there's a, a plinth that, that bifurcates the steps up to this temple and Washington, this larger than life statue is on there. So we, we told the story of JP Morgan, then we told the story of this land speculator, George Washington. And and um, the role he played in, you know, taking indigenous land and whatever. And we revoked that program and we, we scrubbed the base of his statue. And as a couple of us were there, um, this guy came up and he had on a fedora and a gorilla mask. And he had a phone, but he didn't say anything to us. And it's not a very big plinth that was maybe like 10 feet by 10 feet. Like there was like three of us up there. And it took like 15 minutes and like, we're obviously doing something that's somewhat odd, right? Like not everyone. And this, this guy is standing there. And so I put it out on Twitter. I said, you know, this was kind of an odd, odd, you know, it's like, okay, New York, but he didn't jeer. He didn't interfere. He didn't, he didn't overtalk us or anything. And then, and then we went on and, and someone said, oh, well that, maybe that was Hanuman, Hanuman, like the, the monkey God, (laughs) protect the people who tell the truth. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe he was just there for some like Instagram thing. But in my mind, that was a sign from this greater power. What are the odds that the monkey person would come up as we were scrubbing the president's face of the statue saying this history, we see this history and we have to move on in a better way. Mm. Um, that's 
to me, that is this truth. Mm. So, um, anyway, I don't know. Maybe it sounds totally corny. I think people call me new age and I'm really not I'm really just a mom, but I'm trying to find my way in a way that makes sense. And well, some of it is speaking truth to power. And amen. Just use Absolutely. Well, and there's nothing, there's nothing corny about, uh, I mean, what you're doing sounds basically like ritual magic, which is just, I mean, there's nothing new age about it. If you understand a few basic things about magic or about consciousness and the nature of reality. And I, I agree with you. I mean, what do you do against the Fed and Wall Street? I mean, you, you've got to use whatever, <laughs> whatever tools you have. And, um, and like you said, I, I'm pretty empathetic in a way to, I am, I am sympathetic to the view that um, we do need to approach this from a more than a, a nuts and bolts level and that the, the shift is ultimately going to emerge through the, if you want to call it the quantum field or whatever you want to call it. I mean, as consciousness reorganizes itself or self-organizes into a, a higher state, um, you know, we, we do alter everything. We do alter all the different systems. We alter, we influence each other. I mean, that's, that's actually just the science. That's just the hard science that's been done. There's nothing new age about it. So you use the ritualized use of intention, um, you know, and what you were doing was white magic. Um, I'm not necessarily averse to other <laughs> varieties of magic as, as self-defense, but, you know, if people want to go there and, you know, risk the possible blowback and stuff that's up to them. But I definitely think there's, it's, uh, there's something to the idea for sure. I mean, influencing the system at the level of consciousness. Well, and it seems like the wave, like these signals intelligence, like the waveforms. And, and today, um, you know, one of the things that got deleted out of little sis was this guy, his name is Roger Molina. And he's the husband of, I think Christine Maxwell was Ghislaine Maxwell's sister. And she's a learning engineer at University of Texas, Dallas. And he's a professor there of art and technology. And he had a background in astrophysics and uh, NASA instrumentation, but now it's art. And his father was at the Jet Propulsion Lab. And then he went to work for UNESCO. He was invited by Julian Huxley, like the eugenicist. And then he went into like art projects with light. And so I keep thinking like, there's this whole field now about optogenetics. They're talking like it's coming more popularly understood of ways of doing genetic bioengineering where you activate um, like bioluminescent uh, cellular DNA interventions with LED lighting, you know? And I'm like, you know, just out in the space thinking like, oh my gosh, are all these LED lights that we're getting switched on like part of the, this optogenetics. And so, um, Anyway, we were talking about waveforms, I guess, too, and these, these energetic systems, like the, the lights, photo, photo, photonics and waveforms. And I keep thinking, like, even with the dandelions, um, and I have this whole sideboard now, like, and my husband doesn't quite get me on all of this stuff. But like, here's like today's dandelion box was from Minneapolis, and it came with a beautiful handmade card, and like a little pipe cleaner, you know, he made in a heart and, and they come all different ways. Somebody sent me dandelion honey and we, we left that for the ancestors. Like, cause it was on the, the New York speech we gave was at Foley square, which is the African burial ground. You know, it was very deep histories. And so I've just kind of, everyone has these gifts. And I keep thinking like the person in Georgia, the person in Minnesota, the person in Switzerland, these people who are sending, if there's this egg, you know, this waveform that is coalescing, that's trying to contain the whole, like our consciousness. And then there's like, like I kind of feel like it's sort of like popcorn and like, like maybe it just ripples it a bit and then it goes back, but like eventually we'll have enough vibrational quality. Like everybody can be part of this and it's over a continuum of time. 
but it's these disruptions. It's these unexpected, like, do you think anybody, I mean, I don't know, maybe DARPA's already modeled what happens when like, you know, gray haired ladies ask for dandelions. Like, I don't know, but I keep thinking like the chaos part of it. Like if it's a loving intervention that, that maybe that will be the thing that will kind of crack, create cracks, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, critical mass, right? We're trying to drive towards critical mass. At the, and I hit that, hit that point where the phase shift, shift happens and it will be irreversible. And then, you know, the situation will be very, very different, whatever it may be, but it can't stay the same. Um, yeah, I like, I like your description of the sort of egregories um, type being or energy that uh you know is is behind this or driving this and supporting this uh this sort of global fascist um agenda yeah um so look i mean as far as as far as where where do you take the discussion now um moving forward what what are the conversations you're you're having with people what is it that you're trying to really really get through to people so they understand what's the key what are the key things that you 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 feel we need to actually grasp uh, over over the next say few months so i think the fundamental idea that what we're what is coming with this fourth industrial revolution beyond the automation and everything, but probably the key piece is the synthetic biology. That, and it's beyond this biosecurity apparatus, but it's literally this premise that people in powerful positions aim to remake what it is, what life on earth is. And it is being done without informed consent and against people's will. And, you know, it's beyond any particular, you know, injection or protocol or this that, or the other, like, but at a foundational level, um, you know, I think it's a sacred um, engagement, right? There, there, there's, there's a, a reckoning that we've been, we're, that's being put at our feet about this decision and that how do we find a way to bring people into that conversation to realize that that is what is at stake. Um, that it's, it's facing natural, saving natural life in the face of artificial intelligence, right? And that all of the other stuff is like the lead up, but I, I really do feel that the transhumanist synthetic biology is, is that that's the end game, right? And, you know, it's, it's crazy because even when I started this past year, my focus was really on the finance side. And it never really occurred to me that the finance side was creating the data analytics that were going to feed the AI. Cause that's, that's the, the open cog, the, you know, mine, the kids of Ethiopia to feed the robots. And that's a pretty deep thing to, to understand. So I think if we could come together to protect the children, you know, to me, that's a commonality. I, I think there are very few people who would want to sacrifice children, right? If they, they understood and to understand that it's, um, it is this bigger system of mining that's happening. So, um, I don't know if I could just get people to understand that it's not about this one health thing, that it mm. is the transhumanist piece of it. Um, yeah. And then how do we, how can we energetically counter that? Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and from a place that is, I think, respectful of people's uh, faith practices around the world, because I think it is a sacred work. But I do have people who chime in on various things who say like, mine is the only way, right? Yeah. This is the only, and, and I, I think that is not accurate. I think 
the beauty of this earth is the diversity of all of its beings who are connected to its lands in different ways and different practices. And there, there's a, I think a mutual respect that we need to have for one another in that. And, and so th that would be the people that I would call to is that people who understand the sacred connection to natural life and who have, have some sort of practice that is coming from a place of, of care and healing. Mm. And, and like moral courage, you know, to, to do this because a lot of people can't look. So those of us who can look, then we have a, a responsibility to, to carry that burden as best we can, I guess, and um, support each other with our gifts, which are many. Um, and it's always surprising how many, how much abundance has been granted to me on this walk. Um, and I'm so grateful for that, for so many people, for shared teachings and affirmations and care um, it hasn't really been terrible. You know, it's actually been really affirming. So I think, I think we can get there, but, and I would also say the other piece is that I think, um, as much as we feel the pressure of time that in this sort of larger quantum field thing, that there may be more going on to time than we fully appreciate. We may not, we may not want to define ourselves by the limitations of the time we feel like we're in, because I think there's some stretching or other things that may be going on. Um, so like, we shouldn't give up just because we feel like we might run out of time. I think we should, we shouldn't rush into things uh, because we feel like we we're rushed because we don't have time. I think we just need to be very um, intentioned about it. But I think sure. that that time will be on our side too. Okay. Well, that's, that's, I like to hear that. That's somewhat reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's supposed to end this way, Brendan. I don't think it is. Okay. Do you feel like there's a, like a sort of, I mean, are you a believer in destiny, so, so to speak? Uh, I mean, it feels like things happen for a reason. It seems, I mean, not every single thing. And I'm not saying people bring on things when bad things happen to people, but I, um, I'm learning more to trust my gut on things and to not rush and to try to be more aware and intentioned about things. So sure. I don't know if it's as much destiny as understanding your inner compass and listening to it better. Yeah. yeah. Listening to the things outside you that say that this is what you're supposed to be doing according to what society says you're supposed to do. Yeah, exactly. I think that individual walk, you know, walking your um, walking your Tao, as so to speak, and and you know that's where it's sort of like, well, maybe the outcomes in the grand scheme of things, we don't get to decide that. There may not be a you know a way it's supposed to be, but you have your walk that you're, I yeah. think, supposed to walk as an individual, which is kind of the challenge in the world, right? I mean. The odds are stacked against you as a, a freedom-loving, conscious human in many ways, but also I feel like that's also the point of it is that we're supposed to be challenged to to grow into something that we we weren't necessarily before we went through certain challenges. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would be much more boring person <laughs> you know, the past year, you know, plus hadn't happened or, you know, even really the last five years for me, I was I used to be really normal. <laughs> 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 oh god it sounds awful <laughs> yeah, i know right i mean i was much yeah um yeah and i i mean i think the idea that you can grow into being some a more complex enriched 
person through um, engaging meaningfully with other people. You know, I think, you know, a lot of times you hear about getting older and getting more rigid or getting more narrow. And I, I feel like in my case, um, things have unfolded in such a way that I've actually have a much richer understanding of, of the world than, than I would have otherwise. So hmm. I think that's the way it's supposed to go. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, sometimes you just hear like people just get really set in their ways or what have you, oh, but um, yeah, yeah, I've had a lot of doors open, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's no, I don't see why we can't continue growing um, until we finally kick the bucket. Right. Right. I'm going to go, I'm going to go out growing. I'm going to go out there, you know, waving my freak flag and being as annoying and weird and kooky and eccentric as humanly possible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I think we're here to explore. I mean, we're here to explore what it means to be human and, 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 um, you know, and I, I think that's the thing that, you know, the one I think the most about the children is think of all their gifts, right? Think of all the things that their walks and what they would bring to the world. And this idea that, um, you know, this trap them in a virtual reality headset and make them build a prison um, is a really dark thing. And it's really not a complicated um, thing to explain to people. Like you don't under, have to understand every nuance of how blockchain works or, you know, all of these things, but you know, there, there's a graphic of Nubian VR, which is this very stylized image of a, a young girl with this, her eyes like covered with this, you know, Google glass kind of cardboard thing, just like on her senses. And I'm like that, that says that all right. And it, it, especially if you understand it as a military, a military campaign, um, those of us who like, if you are a moral person of faith, I don't think that you can allow that to happen without loudly proclaiming that it's unjust. Mm. And um, although quite a few people were doing it today, they didn't want to know. <laughs> I was pretty insistent. I mean, you can imagine, but I was chasing people down the sidewalk, my flyers. You know. Surely, surely not. <laughs> oh, no, I can be more persistent, but yeah. <laughs> um, okay, let's wrap it up. I know it's probably getting late for you. So I just, if I could, if I could just, if you wouldn't mind indulging me for just one more time to head for the, for the sake of my friends in the medical arena, the health arena, um, and all those people out there, those activists, I, it occurred to me while you were talking to ask this question, which is if we prevented say globally, not just one country, but if we globally prevented the medical passport in order to be, you know, to be able to fly, um, or to go travel interstate, if we prevented that, what kind of a victory would that represent? How useful is that ultimately, do you think? I think we need to make sure that there's no biometric identity. Full stop. Yeah. Period. Full stop. And it has to be understood as within this financial construct, within this game of hedge fund betting. Um, until everybody understands that it's more than the medical. I mean, the medical is key because it will also be your electronic health record and it will be part of like what your ongoing gene therapies are until you become the transhumanist entity that they imagine you know, when they're creating eugenicist world, like the electronic health records will run on blockchain and that's part of it. But it's a key piece, but it's not exclusively. Um, I think we should just refuse to be on blockchain. I mean, that's, that's it for me is that you know, and, and I still have people who are like, I think it's the greatest thing, you know, to be on block. I'm like, well, if they also always say, well, they're supposed to tell you what they're doing and you're supposed to actually kind of 
agree to it. They kind of made it a little clear. It's a chain, right? Like, what is part of a chain? Like, I mean, he's just like, no, you know, like it's energetically, we should not be part of the chain. Um, certainly not that chain. Um, so, I mean, I think, it, I think it would definitely, it would be a wonderful victory. It would be a bigger victory if people understood why it was important. Because yeah. then the next time they'll come around and they'll say, well, hey, all the people who are out, out of jobs on lock, can we give you a, a training voucher and food stamps, you know, food assistance on a digital identity here, just sign up with your retinal scan. Mm-hmm. And then people would all rush out and do that because they wouldn't actually understand that it was just the same thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's my worry. I mean, they, they target the people who are the most vulnerable. Well, that's why they targeted the, the, disab- the people with, you know, the disability community for the blockchain benefits in Australia. I mean, they already did that. And I don't know how organized that community is or if they fully understand. I mean, I think they do because there's been quite a lot of bad stuff with the public benefit systems in Australia, as far as I know, and AI and, you know, profiling and different things that were happening. But um, yeah, we got to get people out of the the technocracy, um, the engineered society uh, panopticon. Oh, completely. I read actually last year, I read um, Shoshana Zuboff's book. Um, what was it called again? I've got it here. Surveillance Capitalism. That's it. The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Thank you. Um, do you have any thoughts on, you know, I mean, I'm assuming you, you're familiar with her work. And I, I noticed as I was reading, there are certain things she or areas she just doesn't go into or things she won't touch. Um, and it's a shame to me in a way that she wrote it and it was published in 2019 before the great sort of hoax kicked off. But I mean, do you have any thoughts around her sort of contribution to understanding the technocracy? Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, she, she she comes out of Harvard Business School, right? <laughs> so, I mean, there's a particular context there, and and I'm I'm somewhat jaded because Michael, uh, uh, uh sorry, not Michael, Kevin Wareback, who's the Wharton professor with the blockchain and gamification like hosted a, an event at Wharton Business School um, about like called after the digital tornado. And it was all about like 10 years after these FCC regulations about the internet. And, and she came and spoke with him and like all the people in the room knew what was coming. Like she was part of a panel discussion where later the guy, the respondent to the panel was talking about tracking people's food purchases with like wearable technology, you know, and in the grocery stores. So like, She's in, and this was on video, anybody could watch it. So like, it was clear that she is in the circles of people who know these things. Um, and that, that while she touched on the behavioral surplus aspect, which is really important, it never went to the point of, oh, by the way, my employer or my former employer, I think she's retired now, but like Harvard Kennedy School is setting all this stuff up and it's going to be linked to hedge funds, right? Nobody was going to talk about the hedge funds. So that's the limiting factor. Um, for me, the, the book that has provided me more useful context is like Yasha Levine's book, Surveillance Valley, which is the, the military history of the internet. Okay. And so again, that doesn't talk about paper success, but it does provide this military con- context. And, um, and again, to me, Keith, like my vision would be a peace movement, a global solidarity peace movement against this military um, technological apparatus against the AI. Um, so his book was really informative. Um, so it's capitalism, but I don't, I don't like, as far as I can tell, and I, I mean, granted, I don't know all of the, you know, I'm certainly not 
widely read on everyone, but I don't know too many people talking about that capitalism is going virtual, that it's about gamified digital assets. Sure. And, and I, I don't know, I would, I would be interested in people think that's the wrong analysis. <laughs> I mean, to me, it seems perfectly logical if you hit a finite world and you need growth that you build a new world and that that new empire is, is this militarized video game. But <laughs> um, I guess we'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we will, I suppose. Well, look, um, I, I don't want to take you uh, take up too much of your time. You've you've had a huge day already. <laughs> I don't know how you're still how you're still talking at this point. But um, do you have um, aside from you know any any sort of last thoughts you want to leave leave us with? Um, do you have any? Oh, actually, let me let me just get your details so people where do they follow you? What's the best way to follow you? I know you've got wrench in the gears as your website. Just um, fill them in again. Yeah. So uh, wrenchinthegears.com, wrench like the tool. Um, is my blog. And I haven't been writing as much lately because I've been doing a lot of interviews and, and presentations, but I do still have a YouTube channel. Um, and this is Allison McDowell. It's A-L-I-S-O-N, um, M-C-D-O-W-E-L-L. Um, and there's, I, I usually ask for interviews, like for a, a copy of the talk or whatever. So after I, I did one with Sergi and then his channel got taken down. So I'm like, oh, I probably actually better make a copy of my own to keep on my own channel. Um, so like, I don't really do my own podcast, but I keep them all there and I have a lot. I'd usually do like two or three a week. And, um, uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's where I'm at. And, um, I guess what I would just say in closing is, you know, I, I have a, I have a friend who's, who's very thoughtful about things like some very good teachings and, um, you know, cause I struggle trying to get people that I care about or, to, to understand these, these things, um, uh, when there, where there's re- resistance and, you know, he has said that you can't change people's minds, you know, you can't actually change, have direct, but you can live your truth and you can put your intentions in the world. And there's like this intercessor, you know, there's an interceding force that will carry it, you know, where it needs to go. And, and you might never know where that is, right. You know, you might not know how far, this intention that you put out in the world, who it affected or who that affected or, you know, how the the chain went down. And, you know, when I think of the dandelion flux and those sorts of things, you know, they just go out, right. And you don't never know to track all of where all the things land. Um, And so I think, I think that's something to hold on to as we walk this walk is that if we, knowing that we're fallible humans and we're never going to do it perfectly, but if we commit ourselves to practicing living from a place of moral courage. And, you know, I actually, I, I draw a lot of inspiration from the Berrigan brothers. And I don't know if you know of them, they were um, uh, leftist Catholics in, in the U S anti-war peace. They, they, they did a lot of work around militarization. Um, Daniel and Philip Berrigan, uh, they were, they were priests and, and I didn't even know about the radical left Catholics, but um, they were part, they burned the draft cards um, in Catonsville. Um, during the Vietnam War and did bed, bedtime for that. <laughs> and, um, but they were principled people and they were very small groups of people that, that made these principled stands. And so I think, um, yeah, put your intention out. And as Cliff says, the Valley of Love is out there. We already won, it's done, but we have to, we may have to like do the hard walk to get there, you know, but, um, but it's there for us. It's already there. We just, um, when we get there, the condition we get there in maybe is up for question, but um, the universe is with us. 
I have to believe the overall universe is with us, not DARPA, not Five Eyes. I do believe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. With us in a very different kind of way. Um, well, do you have any book recommendations or, you know, presentations you feel like would really help people as well? I mean, aside from, I recommend everyone just watches your stuff and devours as much as possible, but do you have other things that you suggest to people? Well, the book, I haven't finished it yet, but I've, I've been in correspondence um, with Stephen Newcomb and he is uh, uh, a scholar, an independent scholar, really, of he spent most of his adult life studying the papal bulls, actually. Oh. And the doctrine um, many people call of discovery, but he actually frames it as domination and looking at the language of domination and the religious aspect of it and the law, the legal apparatus and the degree to which in, in North America um, that property law actually stems from this domination principle of Christian law uh-huh. and the implications for indigenous people. And his book is called Pagans in the Promised Land. And so my, my friend uh, Tessa did a, a, she has a podcast. I'm trying to remember the name of the, the it's something like making language better or something. It's about words, but um, Tessa Lena and, and Stephen Newcomb, if you Google them, I'm sure it will come up about language, the use of language and power, because I do think some of this is also sort of spell casting, you know, and, oh, yeah. and how we use language and how we structure these legal systems. Right. And, and to go back centuries and to really interrogate the, um, the way in which language is used as a tool of domination. Right. And then unta- disentangling that, like once you can see it, how do you disentangle out of it, back out of it? And so, you know, there are, this is hard stuff to know. And there are a lot of people who have a hard time engaging, but I could tell that Stephen, like he knew the law. And I said, all of the stuff you've been studying for 30 plus years and with this legal history of hundreds of years is now being embedded in these digital contracts hmm. in this augmented reality. And, and it made a lot of sense, right? That this new, this new empire was being fabricated on this legal structure of this domination. So anyway, I, I would recommend Pagans in the Promised Land okay. for a, you know, it's a non-traditional look, but the, the fourth industrial revolution is built on this domination history. Beautiful. Yep. I'll be looking into that for sure. Thank you for that. Um, Alison McDowell, what can I say? Thank you. You're a gem. You're a, such an asset to, to life and humanity. Um, I appreciate you hanging out and having out the chat with me. Uh, I look forward to doing it again. <laughs> um, you're, you're kind of like my go-to. I, I feel like I need to have a quarterly every year. I, I've got to have four sessions with you to, to get the state of play as you see it. So um, yeah, just thank you for your work and your time and energy. I appreciate it a lot. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And, and, you know, I know you guys are really deep into it down there, but you know, we can, you know, it also brings out the good in people. I know it, it's, it it's the best of times and the worst of times. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, that, that line has become a bit of a household joke lately, funnily enough. So I'm glad you, you dropped that in there. It's a nice little, <laughs> yeah. little affirmation. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Alison. I'll let you go on to finish your night up and um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll chat again at some point, hopefully. All right. We'll do. All right. Be well. Thank you, ladies and gents, Alison McDowell. Thanks mate. Ciao for now. If you're sick and tired of cancel culture and censorship on social media, please feel welcome to join me and thousands of red-pilled folk at my own independent alternative, truth.network. That's http colon slash slash T-R-O-O-T-H dot network. See you there.
I've experienced censorship on no less than four different platforms so far, so if you'd like to help me get my work past the censors, please do subscribe and share it around for me. And also remember to join me on truth.network, which is the platform I created for our conscious community to connect and gather away from the censors after Facebook, Facebook shut down our page in 2018. So head over there, create your free account at truth.network, it's T-R-O-O-T-H, and I'll see you inside. Take care.